Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on thebigscreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Doc Blitz. Podcasting, the final frontier of radio. These are the voyages of Rick and Nick. And since they couldn't be reached, their stunt doubles, Dave and Hoof. Their ongoing mission... To seek out amazing entertainment on screen and off. To seek out new genres. To boldly watch what most of us have watched before. That was beautiful, Dave. Well done. <laughs> the more over-the-top Shantarian you can go. William Shatner, who makes a weird pauses and then picks up the pace really fast. Yeah, and especially when you can picture in your mind the... Facial expressions that are coming with said pauses as he's working out what he wants to say. You know, the funny thing is, the more over the top you go, you're like, well, that's totally just a caricature. And then every once in a while, you watch one of those episodes or something, and it's really not. It's almost exactly the way it's done. You really don't have to try too hard to imagine what we are going to be talking about today for our episode of the podcast, although we have been teasing this for the past two episodes, really. We briefly mentioned this, I believe, at the end of our Avengers episode, and we talked about this in our end, our beginning of summer preview at the very end of that one. We're talking Star Trek today, and it should be a good episode here on Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, which is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, which is located on Highway 2, just down the street from the airport. They've got $5 movie nights. You can find their movie passes in our Big Deals store. It's the Bemidji Theater, located on Highway 2, and we're thrilled to have them as a a sponsor of the podcast. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Captain Dave Brooks. Captain Dave Brooks. On the bridge. And I am... First officer, Mr. Joel, Mr. Spock. That is highly logical. Live long and prosper, Dave. It should be... Gotta get that thumb out. There you go. Yes, it should be a very fun episode today going through the, well, very, very varied history of Star Trek, which is going... An incredibly rich history as well, which is going to take up almost the entirety of this episode today to be able to fully explore. There is so much that we have to unpack with this. You know, one of the things I was thinking about, well, how are we going to do this podcast? Where do you start? I had to Google it this morning. There is so much as far as programming for Star Trek. Lineage-wise, it doesn't go as far back as, say, James Bond, but James Bond only really just does the movies. They're working on the 25th. That's kind of easy to dive into. Between, oh, geez, how many series now on on TV and streaming and how many films and how many timelines and arguably a third one of those. it's I, had, I looked it up. Hang on a second. I'm going to go back and look at my phone here and see what, uh, what the number was. 531 hours of programming to date, which means if you sat down tonight and said, I'm going to watch this beast, and you started with episode one, and you watched every episode of every series, and including the animated series, and all the films... It is just over 22 days that you'd be sitting in that chair nonstop, 24 hours a day, watching 
to catch all of Star Trek. And even then, I don't think you'd quite capture exactly and entirely what Star Trek is. Somebody did the work to put all of that math together. I Googled it. And to imagine that. I didn't check I, the math. I just Googled it, and that's what I came up with, but I believe it. I, I do believe it as well, Dave, and it's it's kind of hard to fathom it because this is maybe one of the biggest franchises in in on-screen history. If we're going to count television and movies together, this is one of the biggest franchises in on-screen history, and maybe you could say the original franchise in some ways for not just on your television screen, but your movie screen. And then if you want to bring the two together, it, it's like you said, it is incredibly rich. The history that exists with Star Trek, the fandom that exists with it as well, and has existed from the beginning, from what was a very troubled beginning in many ways for Star Trek. And then a revival that kicked it into overdrive in the late seventies and into the eighties that has now led to what we have seen in the 90s and then now in the present day as well with some of another the, revival with yeah really a second revival that has taken place and in some new mediums as well this is you know obviously the show rick and nick talk flicks well a, a chapter of star trek takes place on the big screen but the majority and you could also argue where star trek works the best is on the small screen. So we're taking a bit of a detour sidestep here. Uh, Rick and Nick talks screen, not just flicks. Yeah, when they go together as much as something like Star Trek, you kind of can't help it. I mean, franchises in the movies have become very commonplace, and I think we're going to talk about this when we get whenever we do an episode on looking back at the decade in review, which I think we're, we're going to have to do at some point this year, reviewing yeah. the 2010s because we're coming up on it. Yeah, we're approaching the end of them. And I had a thought the other day that I think we'll delve into more when we get there, but it's that movies today have become so episodic in some ways and part of a longer chain of events. Movies in the past, some of the franchises in the past, they used to be a lot more, yeah, if it was going to be one in a line of movies... Maybe there would be some strands that would eventually carry over, but there was, you know, there was kind of a definitive beginning and an end for each movie, and yet they could still pick up threads that were left and be able to create another movie, but it still felt like you were getting an individual movie that was separate from the others, but not totally separate. And I think Star Trek had elements of that, although with with one great exception that was in there, they, they were kind of that way, um, where each movie was its own entity in some ways, but they... But they were a catalyst for what was to come in the future of of having many sequels, having many stories, and maybe occasionally piecing some of those movies together in direct sequel fashion like we saw with uh, The Wrath of Khan and The Search for Spock. And Star Trek IV, it's known as the Genesis tri- Trilogy. So they're very somewhat connected to one another. So it's, yeah, Star Trek is... Like we said, where do you start with this thing? And as far as maybe a good logical logical place to start, a, a bit of a background on the history and where it came from without delving too far into it. Of course, uh, well, Star Wars has George Lucas. Star Trek has our man Roddenberry. In Rod, we trust. Yes. Gene Roddenberry, in early 1964, when he when he pitched this to Desilu Productions, here's what he, he described it. He called it a wagon train 
to the stars, referencing the the other show, the um, wagon train, the western show, wagon train. Yeah, and um, it, it's it's kind of a funny concept when you think about it that way. But going into sp- yeah, but going into space, that was that was the kicker here. Going into space, but it worked. And Gene Roddenberry was his vision for the future was one that is still adhered to. It's there are exceptions and there are variances, but by and large. It's a positive future, and you got to think about Star Trek was born out of the the mid '60s, which was race riots and inequality and the Cold War and all of this. I mean, in the, the the nation, in a way, poked itself in the eyeball. It was bordering on is this is this going to hold up? Is this country going to make it through the '60s? You got presidents being assassinated and and social and political leaders being knocked down between Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. I mean, the the, the nation was in trouble. You got race riots in the streets. It was a messed up time. But Star Trek delivered what Roddenberry wanted to deliver was a message of hope. You know, the the ship itself became a metaphor for planet Earth. And we'll focus on the original trilogy here real quick. So at a time where you've got the Cold War threat, hey, there's Mr. Chekhov. He's a Soviet Russian guy who's helping to the greater good. We had just gotten out of, we were actually just getting into our third consecutive war with an Asian Pacific nation, World War II with the Japanese, Korean War in the 50s. Now we're getting into Vietnam, and there's Mr. Sulu. That's right. And they never said what nationality he was. He kind of represented all of them. you know. And he was a good guy, and he was working toward the, toward the jest. And even more so, you have women's suffrage going on and women's suffering. You have black race riots. Now you got Lieutenant Uhura. And she's got a prominent position on the bridge. It was a message to everybody what we're going through right now is only a chapter. It will get better from here, and it gave messages hope. And a notable example would be, say, Whoopi Goldberg, who would later get into Star Trek. It gave her and many others like her, and and guys too, a, a message of hope. Yeah, another example, a very general one, but just the alien presence of Spock as well, somebody who was very different and could do some very different things as well, but he still represented something somebody that was a little bit different in the mix and yet still somebody who was incredibly valuable too but not embraced by the network at first Uh, nbc is where star trek debuted mr spock and some of the early pro everyone knows what mr spock looks like in nowadays but in early publicity photos they really didn't want to influence that at least the network didn't they de-tipped his ears so they were round they fixed his eyebrows. They weren't so arched because he looked kind of devil-like, you know. And originally, they wanted him to have green skin. You know, he's got green blood. Yeah. So they had to make some compromises. And even when they figured out the look, they still, in publicity photos, kind of changed him to look more human. And not everybody was ready to accept that. Now, you think about the way we are nowadays. You can push that envelope pretty far. In the 1960s, it wasn't like that, you know. So to have things like that, Star Trek had the first interracial kiss at a time that Couples like, uh, you know, we mentioned Desilu and uh, Lucy and Desi were not allowed to sleep in the same bed, even though their characters were married and they were married in real life. You had to sleep in separate beds by that point. So the first interracial kiss between Kirk and Uhura, which was scripted, of course, and forced to happen, was it never been shown like that on TV. And that was a big moment, which maybe in the 20 teens or 2020s almost doesn't resonate now like it did then. But it was it pushed that boundary, and that might be the first thing that Star Trek became exceptionally well known for. Other than its dwindling ratings, 
was its use of allegory. Yes. In the 1960s, there was so much censorship on what you could and could not talk about. You know, the Vietnam War was going now. You know, Star Trek debuted in September of 1966. So Vietnam, as far as the American involvement, had just been going for about a year. Hollywood in general was also coming off the ripple effects of communism and some of what came from that and McCarthyism as well. And just the the fear of, of all of that that was in the media and in the movies and in television as well where there were there were people being blacklisted in Hollywood and things like that so the fear factor was pretty real around how do we address these topics where do we stand on some of these topics as well and you i mean for those of you that are younger now and this is even before me i'm i'm born in the 70s so a lot of this happened even before me um, so you could take a look at well, what was the late night programming like. Well, you got uh, the Tonight Show, of course, with Jack Parr and later Johnny Carson. And but you also had shows like Laughing that were just ridiculously safe fare. They did not provoke like you'll find now on Jimmy Kimmel or Stephen Colbert or The Daily Show. None of that or anything even resembling that. You could not talk about Vietnam or what's going on in the streets. And now Chicago's having a meltdown with a race riot and all of this stuff could not be addressed. Star Trek found a way to do it by using allegory. So it was about exactly what was happening here, but it wasn't. It was really about an alien that was doing this. But if you really look below the layers, you found out, you know, that kind of sounds a lot like what's going on here. Give you an example. The Klingons were created to represent the Cold War Soviet threat. They were not the Soviet Union. They were not the Russians, which was still kind of flaring up even in the here and now. We couldn't talk about the Russians, couldn't talk about the war. But we could talk about how the Federation, which is what Kirk and crew were part of, and the Klingons trying to influence a certain planet to lean their way and their sphere of influence. It's not about the Cold War. It's sort of about an interstellar Cold War. And it it told an allegory story because that's exactly what Vietnam was. The impacts of conflict. And that was just one element in the storytelling. Star Trek was incredible in its early days, and it especially developed this later on with the next generation, in being able to tell a very philosophical story or a larger story using the plot of a given episode or given plot threads. There were episodes where they were a little bit more adventurous in their nature, but the roots of telling telling larger stories in, and having some philosophy behind them is really rooted in the original series, and it was there from the very beginning. I think the next generation became much more lauded for the way that they told those stories, but that was something that was rooted in the very beginning with the original series, and you can see those kinds of themes woven in with the kind of stories that they told. It wasn't just going off and having adventures on other planets in other galaxies and exploring. It wasn't just about battling other other alien groups that they found out there it was about it was about the why behind some of those things it was about the how behind some of those things and coming into conflict with larger human questions i suppose and larger human problems and doing so on the blank canvas of an unknown galaxy and unknown planets which is so often a great place in in very western type fashion you use the canvas of your setting to tell a larger story that you have in mind, and Star Trek did that from the very beginning. Two good ways to explain what Star Trek is tone-wise. 
Uh, there was an NBC executive when they shot the original pilot episode called The Cage, and it was a very different Star Trek compared to what would come later. Spock was the only character there that would carry over. There was no Kirk yet or Scotty. Um, they said it was too cerebral for TV. They said this is just as, this is too much of a thinking person show. So J.J. Abrams, who later got involved with Star Trek and got them relaunched on the big screen, called Star Trek a very rich, layered, orchestral piece of music, not rock and roll. Star Wars was rock and roll. And recently, Star Trek has gotten a few extra electric guitars to go along with their orchestral piece. So he's mixed in a little Star Wars with the Star Trek. It's a little more shoot 'em up, Captain Shoot 'em up, rather than some of the others. I would say the last movie was probably a pretty good balance. But you're right. Not every story was an allegory. Some of them were adventurous. And like any series, any show, they're not all winners. There are some episodes. Spock's brain comes to mind as maybe one of the worst of all time ever. There's one, I forget the name of the episode, as an Operation Annihilate, where they basically get attacked by flying omelets. Look like fake vomit flying around. Yes. It's, it's one of the dumbest things you'd ever seen. But it's, it, it was what it was, and they're not all winners. But you know, overall, when you factor it all out and you weigh the good and the bad, holy moly, are the scales lean toward the good. Well, they had... They were, to borrow a, a, a phrase from, from them, they were going where no show had gone before in many ways, you know, using space as their canvas, using the allegorical kind of tales that they were telling, using some big philosophical points to really to really discuss and, and set as the backdrop for their show. I think there was going to be some hit or miss that would come with it. And really, the hit or miss began with the pilot itself. So they started with this this pilot called The Cage that they began with, with Captain Christopher Pike, who was the predecessor to Captain James T. Kirk, who had become the, the well-known captain of the Enterprise. The Cage got rejected, but it was kept around later. And it, it was came used... Out, it came out eventually, but... Yeah, it was used later. Um, but... NBC executives still liked the concept, and so they said, give this another try. Which is unheard of. Right. Give us a second pilot. And then they came out with Where No Man Has Gone Before, which is a really a, a big moment early in, in the Star Trek run with the original series, um, with kicking it off with the crew as we know them and some elements of the show as we know them, and and then they were able to, to get started from there, but... Dave, season one was a struggle. By the end of it, I mean, ratings started out very good. But you mentioned this earlier. Ratings really struggled with the original series during its run, so much so that when they got into the second season, NBC was threatening to cancel frequently with oh, the yeah. show. They had, um, you know, there's a thing in any kind of broadcasting, radio or TV, that when you get people that are going to seek you out, they're gonna, they want to watch your show, they're going to watch your show. But you also want to try to grab those that have no idea what they're tuning into. They just want to see the first couple moments and, oh, this looks good. I'm going to watch some more. If you get enough people that are looking for shoot 'em up laser shows in outer space, after a while they realize there's this thing Star Trek does that's less than exciting. What's Oh, talking. There's a lot of talking in Star Trek about important subjects and interesting philosophical debate. And So if you're just a guy drinking beer, it's like, eh, there's no lasers this episode. Next. They struggled with ratings all the time. And so what happened was something very unusual, something that had never happened before. The fans that watched this show were 
passionate. You thought Lord of the Rings and the Game of Thrones and all these other great shows have passionate fan bases that didn't hold a candle to what the Trekkies, as they were being called, were going to do. They instituted, and in an organized fashion, a letter-writing campaign that had never happened before, and they flooded NBC with, we got to keep this show on the air, and they were kind of all but forced to do it. So there was a second season. After the second season, more of the same, there was another even bigger letter-writing campaign that forced a third season but even then, the third season, a lot of things behind the scenes had changed. It became a little more psychedelic, if that would be a term. It really kind of fell off the rails. There was going to be no saving it after the third season, letter-writing campaign or no letter-writing campaign. Yeah, Gene Roddenberry resigned as producer, yeah. really, and and really toned down his, his directorial involvement. That's why Fred Freiberger is who you often see um, afterward as far as the producing in that third season. But then, of course, the show ended its run at that point. But it was syndication where the the show really found its legs and the the greater craze of watching the stars in the movies. And but what I mean by that is seeing other galaxies, other planets travel through space, come into the movies more in the 70s. But Star Trek and syndication was doing great even before Star Wars came along in 1977. Well, the other thing is you got to think about who was watching the show. It's generally young American people, kids. What are they doing in the evenings on primetime? Generally, they're not staying home and watching them. The third season, NBC was so determined to kill the show, letter writing or not, they put it on at Friday nights at 10. What are you doing at Friday nights at 10 if you're a young one? You're out and you're doing things with your friends. You're not watching a show. Well, I'll TiVo it. There was no such thing. Hell, even VHS, you couldn't record the show. The technology did not exist. That's right. You either caught it the first time or you didn't see it. That was that was all you had. At the time, syndication, what is syndication, also known as reruns? The concept did not exist at that time. If you didn't see it, you didn't catch it. And so syndication became a brand new thing. Star Trek conventions. And now you think of things like Comic-Con. Star Trek is what started that. So clearly there was an uprising. Star Trek was demanded. They gave him a short-lived cartoon series. It was actually pretty good on CBS, and that went away eventually. And then Star Wars hit. And Star Wars, we've already done a podcast about it, changed everything. And Star Trek owes a big debt of gratitude to Star Wars. Yeah, another movie that that had some success in the sci-fi realm was Close Encounters of the Third Kind, around the same time. But yeah, Star Wars really led the way as the flagship movie for making Paramount, who had purchased the, the series, start to consider, okay... Let's what see do we if, have? Yeah, what do we have here? Let's see if maybe we can take this concept and bring it to the big screen, especially since it has a very passionate following. And that's what then, at the end of 1979, brought about Star Trek, the motion picture. It brought, around a, it brought around a lot of different things. Buck Rogers made a comeback. I mean, every, Battlestar Galactica, anything they could find that was outer space, everybody was jumping on this bandwagon as fast as they could. Star Trek was an established brand, and there's a lot of behind-the-scenes 
history that's interesting, whether it was going to be a TV movie or another TV series or a big screen, they went back and forth and jumbled around and canceled it and restarted it, but it ultimately became the first movie, which was a success. I think it was in the top ten of movies in 1979, but the movie itself wasn't all that great. A lot of talking. It's gotten better if you watch the director's edition. But what really saved Star Trek, Star Wars really kicked it off. They brought in a producer named Harv Bennett, who was from Paramount's TV division, and he really brought that thing back. He knew how to do things on a budget, how to get things done. They used existing materials and everything else. Long story short, they came up with a direct sequel to an earlier episode from the show, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which is looked at as maybe the best of all of them. Enough so that uh, one of the newer movies, Star Trek Into Darkness, really tried to do a lot of parallels to Star Trek II in a lot of ways. It was a little forced, but it, it, but it worked. And that's what really brought Star Trek back as Gosh, that was a rollicking adventure. And from there, that's kind of where we'll leave the history. It evolved from there. The movies continue to do good. Well, let's do another series. And along came the next generation. Roddenberry started to phase out. And another producer named Rick Berman started to phase in. And then they got spinoff shows like Deep Space Nine and Voyager and later Enterprise. Before And the next generation crew made the leap to the big screen when the original crew was done. And it became, by the 90s, an interstellar empire. I mean, they were everywhere. They had, at times, two different shows on and a movie coming out all in the same week. It was it was as big as it got. By the 30th anniversary, Star Trek was absolutely on top. But by the 40th anniversary, which would have been in 2006, Star Trek was gone. The shows were done. The movies were done. It had just kind of it had burned itself out in some way before an eventual revival in 2009 when J.J. Abrams got on board. And now you've got, uh, well, they're kind of in limbo right now. We'll get into what's going on with the whole Viacom Paramount thing. But uh, they did pretty well on the big screen. And now they've got a streaming series, Star Trek Discovery. Plus they've got the new Star Trek Picard coming and more. Um, so CBS All Access has got a lot of this streaming. And we'll see what they do on the big screen. That's just kind of a general nutshell as to yeah. where we went. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theaters. We continue today with talking about Star Trek and so much, so many layers to get into with talking about Star Trek. It is pretty amazing, Dave, how it exploded, the Star Trek concept over the 80s and the 90s. And there there are two things I want to get into quick that, that you had um, talked about as you were going over that that history there is they literally jumped into into hyperspace with what they did and and went to warp factor when it came to picking I up what their you did there. I yeah, got that. Thank you. Thank you. When it came to picking up the popularity, number 1 is is Wrath of Khan. Wrath of Khan was huge because they brought uh, after the Star Trek the motion picture, it was very slow that movie was. I think there's some neat elements of that movie. There are some really neat elements, but it was slow. And I think it was a little too deep into some of the conceptual stuff that Star Trek got into. Wrath of Khan combined the philosophical and the swashbuckling and made it a pretty gripping one, especially when you have a guy like Khan as your villain, who, of course, came from the show, but was also a powerful villain as well and a big test. And then, you know spoilers are coming when we talk about stuff on here. So if you haven't seen Wrath of Khan, brace yourself here. Then comes the big moment that Spock gets killed in the movie. And that uh, Leonard Nimoy apparently was not really thinking about being involved with the movie. But he was really intrigued by the idea of Spock dying in this movie. 
And they they went through a lot of different rewrites and a lot of different reconsiderations over what do we do about Spock's death because this is a well it leaked <gasps> in moment a, in a day before the internet it leaked that Spock was going to die in the new movie yep and most fingers point to Roddenberry himself who would oftentimes go into business for himself would go to these conventions and oh yeah they're making a new movie and they're going to kill Spock what. So they came up with the idea in the beginning where not just Spock, but everybody dies. Oh, it's just a simulation. Okay. So it, def- it pops that balloon until you get to the end of the movie and you realize, oh, this is for real. you know. And then he, he really does go. Oh, of yep. course he would come back. Nobody really di- – well, Kirk never really came back. But um, you don't always die for real right. in Star Trek. Well, then it, it spawned the search for Spock where he was – Kind of in the movie, kind of not. But, but, but Nimoy directed out. it. Yes, he did. So, and and then it it just that got the ball rolling on the movie side of things for the '80s because there were Star Trek movies coming out every couple of years. But it started with Wrath of Khan, which was a critical and financial success with how good the story was and how powerful the the characters were in that. And if you're not a Star Trek fan and you're looking for a place to jump in, kind of like this podcast, where do you start? I would recommend Star Trek 2 because it's really Star Trek at its best. And if you're going to like Star Trek at all, you'll like that movie. You might not get everything, but you can, there's enough that's there that you can pick it up. Like There's even oh, a little yeah. bit of Kirk feeling like he's old and sort of past it a little bit at the beginning of the movie, which if you know the details of the original series and you know a little bit more about that, then you can kind of get a sense of that. Of why he felt that way, but it's still one you can jump in on. Yeah, it's there's a lot of elements there. It's about aging. It's about loss. It's about it's about a lot of different things. It's about revenge. There is backstory, obviously, because it itself is a sequel, not to the first movie, but to an episode called Space Seed from the second season of Star Trek. But do you need to have seen Space Seed to get Star Trek Two? No. It's all roughly recapped. Okay, I got it. Okay, so it's kind of like an allegory to Moby Dick. Yep. We're here after the great white whale. Khan is after his Kirk, and Kirk's going to have to defend himself while he's facing his own mortality. The other huge moment, apart from the syndication that, that really brought Star Trek back around, I think, in the 80s, was the coming of Star Trek The Next Generation, which is, by by what you would look at like in terms of Emmy Awards, in terms of critical review... The Next Generation is maybe one of maybe the best series on television of any of them. I and would I would agree. With the run that it had and the success that it had, it got out to a, a bit of a slow start. What what's new with Star Trek? It got out to a little bit of a slow start, but when it hit the ground running, when they got some of the big storylines in there, the Borg, you you have this uh, you have suddenly the Klingons are our friends. You know, you've got to get up to speed on that concept. You've got new threats that come in there. They threaded storylines together. And then there's the character of Q constantly popping up who in there. It's like, Q who? So you have Name all... Name of an episode? I yes, got that. Yes, you have all of these different threads that are in there. And they strung together storylines really well while also having good standalone episodes. Some that have had ripple effects well beyond like where Picard in one episode has an entire life in 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 another reality and in another uh, just another setting um that that takes place it's like a wow kind of episode that takes your breath away a little bit and then you've got other ones like uh, the best of both worlds which was a, which was a huge cliffhanger with Picard 
getting in, wrapped up in the Borg, which is this monstrous mechanical villain. Cyborg. A cyborg villain that they have to contend against and constantly have to contend against with its threat. And the next generation had monstrous ratings as well. Just absolutely enormous ratings on TV. And it's what helped span the coming of Deep Space Nine and all that came beyond with TV for Star Trek. But you also talk about syndication. That was a thing with The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. They were syndicated shows. They weren't on on network. Right. An individual station would subscribe to air the show, and they would, and that's how Star Trek thrived. That was, at that time, unheard of. On multiple stations. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All over the place. Didn't matter if it was NBC or ABC or what they were. If their station wanted them, they had them. Now, later, Paramount would come up with the UPN, United Paramount Network, and Deep Space Nine would kind of show up on that, Voyager, and uh, starting with Star Trek Enterprise later before UPN went away. Um, and that was as close to a network that Star Trek had before when the original series was on NBC. But on the big screen, the original crew, as they were kind of wrapping up their tenure in the late 80s, early 90s, and Picard and their crew and the next generation were picking up steam, uh, the question was, well, who's the better captain? The question became... When does the original crew pass over the baton to the next generation crew? And they kind of did that with the sixth and pretty much final original series film. Uh, and then they had the the real passing of the baton in the seventh film, which was the first one with the next generation crew, Star Trek Generations. Both Kirk and Picard are there before the the next generation crew would kind of take it from there. And, and go forward. And now we've got, we're back to the original crew, but in a different parallel universe. And that's that's this whole other thing. But it was, it really became something bigger than it's ever been before or since. It has never quite gotten back to that level. Hopefully it will. And that's what's really hard, Dave, as we, as we get back into talking about just the entire franchise in general. It's so hard when you have reached a peak in any franchise to either stay there or surpass it or recapture it. It's very hard to do one of those three things because when you've reached that peak, it's it's easy to just kind of drift back into back into irrelevancy as new ideas come along that start to supersede yours. You know, it's, it's like, hey, you've got to enjoy your spot. You've got to enjoy your run for as long as you can because it can't last forever. It's not going to last forever. So you got to enjoy it while it's there. And that was really the late 80s into the 90s, I think, for Star Trek. And, and even you can go back into the mid-80s, at least on, on film, on screen. Um, and, and then they, they, they kind of reached their saturation point, really. And that's it's kind of... Or do you think they didn't get no. oversaturated no, all no, that no. much? I, don't, I think there's, a, there's an argument to be made about that, but I don't think that's what happened to Star Trek. The original series and The Next Generation are both really cut from the same cloth. They're about optimism, and even Voyager is too. While Deep Space Nine, if the original series and The Next Generation was a wagon train to the stars, basically you've got your team of wagons, you I pull see into where a different town, different situation, then you ride on. Deep Space Nine was the western town. You don't explore places. Places come to you. Right. So it was essentially the western town. Instead of, you know, the corral, you've got you've got the promenade. Instead of the sheriff's office, you've got the And that's the what made it unique. It was unique, but what Star Trek Deep Space Nine really did was it thrived on conflict, interpersonal conflict, something that did not really exist and was in a way forbidden in Star Trek because we're all going to work together here. But now you've got people like Major Kira who, in a previous existence, 
was a terrorist, if you really look at it, trying to push off this Cardassian occupation. Think of World War II with the Nazis occupying France. She was part of the French resistance, you know, maybe fighting for the greater good, but her methods were terroristic. In me- so, I mean, that, that's something that's unheard of, and she's a sympathetic, you know, protagonist character, but a terrorist. So it's it's unusual. When you got to Voyager, in my argument, now this is where fans are going to start to split. Voyager is one of the less popular series, and I would agree with that. It's not a bad show. It's kind of a neat concept. Take the take a crew, put them in a completely remote area of space, and say the whole goal here is to get back. Yeah, to get home. So they go off in a brand new, shiny, brand new top-of-the-line starship. They're thrown to the other side of the universe where Klingons don't exist, and they got to find their way home. It's a 70-some-year journey, but they're going to make some stops along the way. By the time the ship got home, what should have happened, in my opinion, they had really cool problems that were easily solved by, well, we'll just reconfigure this electronic thing to emit some pulse and problem solved. It was a cheat, according to me. Now, this is why I said debate, so this is where opinion comes in. But what I would have come up with was this. Remember Back to the Future Part 3? The DeLorean had been struck by lightning at the end of part two in a microchip. Tiny little chip got fried out. Well, you have to rebuild it using 1950s components. So what do you do? You have a big wooden box strapped to the hood of the DeLorean with tubes and transistors and basically the same technology but in 1950s giant style. It's all been condensed. And now that time machine works again, but it looks a little different than it did before. Voyager, when it finally does get home, should have looked kind of like the DeLorean in Part 3, where our technology is getting beat up as we go along. We have to replace this, but how do you do this? Maybe you find some planet that has some sort of a vine that can conduct electricity. So this shiny new starship should barely resemble itself when it finally hobbles across the finish line home. So you're saying it was too unreasonable for science fiction? Or at least its own science fiction. It was, it was a cheat. It was way too easy. It became an episode of The Office, minus the comedy, uh, where it was just another day at work. I mean, literally, the episodes would start with the, with the crew members walking down the hall drinking their, their Ractachinos. You should lose your creature comforts. And you're really becoming a survival situation. It, it wasn't be, desperate enough. It should, you know, it wasn't. It was about exploration and ho-hum another day in, in space. It wasn't, there was no more awe factor. Well, you're on the opposite side where no man has gone before as far as you're aware. It was too easy. And that was my complaint. But fans started to push back and Star Trek Enterprise came out, which, I mean, it got to the point where it was so nitpicky, it started with a pop song rather than a sweeping orchestral fair. That was enough to push people off. Well, yeah, fan, it's interesting. Yeah, Enterprise, first of all, was a complete prequel to even the original series. Like, the origins is what you get there. But it sounds like, Dave, we're, that was the point where the fandom was starting to rear its ugly head a little bit. And you start to get into where, and we've talked about this, where is that line in fandom in terms of what you expect and demand and maybe what's could be considered reasonable. One thing we're finding out, not just with Star Trek, but even Star Wars, where now The Phantom Menace was 20 years ago, it's starting to get that peak of nostalgia. Fans are reappreciating things. Enterprise is not is not a bad show. Was it a flawed show? Absolutely. Absolutely. But all it comes down to a couple of different things. You had the rise of social media. You have the internet really starting to integrate into everybody's life where everybody has a voice. 
and everybody can come together in ways that the letter-writing campaigns of the 60s could only dream about. So now you get people that are not really going to give that show a chance, and I think that was the biggest kiss of death. Nope, nope, it's not exactly the way I want it to be. Nope, I think the Enterprise should look different. Nope, nope, nope. That's it. Never got a chance. I think some of the best episodes of all of Star Trek exist in Star Trek Enterprise. There's one in itself, Similitude, which is one of my personal favorites of all time. I won't get into it, but worth checking out. Um, but the show really suffered from that. But it also suffered from some of the creative forces behind the scenes. Uh, Rick Berman had kind of taken over Star Trek from Roddenberry as he moved on and then passed on. Um, he oversaw all the 24th century shows from Next Generation on through Enterprise. And one of his writers, uh, Brandon Braga, also kind of rose to basically his second lieutenant status, whatever you want to call it. So finally it came to the point where Paramount was going to cancel Star Trek Enterprise. But it wasn't just abrupt. Like, all right, this is the last season and that's it. So they had enough time to come up with a finale. So Brandon and uh, so Berman and Braga came up. So we're going to give a love letter to the fans. It's an episode we've had in our back pocket. You're going to love it. Fans hated it. It wasn't even an episode of the Next Generation. It was an episode of next. It was an episode of the Next Generation in the holodeck visiting an episode from Enterprise. It wasn't. It was the show's finale that wasn't even featuring that show. The cast was even upset about this, but it showed how out of touch from not just the show and what was required of it, but the fandom, that the powers that be behind the scenes really were, and they were that out of touch, and that was their last voyage as you know, care holders of, yeah. the, of Star Trek. Star Trek went dormant, and it went off the air in 05, I think it was. It did, and prior to that, the movies had petered out as well. They had started out pretty well, ended on a bit of a whimper, though, with Nemesis. Didn't do well yeah. at the box office, wasn't really a great movie critically, um, so they, the momentum had really slowed by this point when yeah. it came to both on the the movie screen and on the TV screen. Yeah, and so you know when you look at Star Trek's 30th anniversary in '96, it was a star-studded event hosted by Ted Danson. The 40th anniversary, people are busting out their DVDs to watch something, you know, because that was it. There was nothing. It was sad. And then it took a couple years. There was a lot of behind-the-scenes chit-chat. Even Rick Berman was thinking about bringing something back. Long story short, in comes J.J. Abrams. And again, we're going to go back in time, and we're going to basically relaunch the original crew, but it's a parallel universe, which is a whole other thing. They would eventually be called the Kelvinverse. Um, when you first heard that that was going to be coming, what was your initial reaction? When you found out more about it, because at first they were really secretive about what it is. You could tell it was going to be somewhere dealing with Kirk and Spock just from teaser posters what it was going to be. But it was it was different, but it was familiar, but not. You're like, well, let's wait and see. What it really is is a sequel-prequel relaunch in a way. And there is a backstory that takes place with Picard and everybody that brings it back. Now, we're going to get into this here to wrap up the podcast, this Viacom split. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. But the origins of this reboot actually take place post-Next Generation, if you read into stuff. So it's interesting. So it's kind of a sequel that ends up going back. So there's a history with, with timelines. Is it the Back to the Future one, which was, which was kind of teased in the new Avengers movie? Back to the Future is full of it. There's a little lineal timeline. You can go back in time and change the future, and so there's a ripple effect through time, and the future's altered. Or are there infinite number of parallel universes? You don't right. really go into a different timeline. There's an infinite number of universes where every time you're faced with a choice to go left or right, you do. This is Either described way. as the Kelvin timeline. Well, is yeah, what this one is. It's, it's called temporal mechanics, but it's 
it's the t- the, Kel- the Kelvin timeline works like that. They go back in time and change a specific event. It doesn't change everything that comes after it. It alters the time flow into a whole new dimension. There's infinite number of parallel universes. So while everything we've seen before does still happen, it happens in another parallel universe. And now we've gone off into this other timeline where something was different from the way it was in the prime universe that we know. And these movies have been really enjoyable and very very good. That's yeah. that's the thing. They've they have in some ways made it more on the event the adventure side, especially with uh, Beyond. You were talking a little bit about how they the third and the most recent Star Trek Beyond, uh, which would be the thirteenth Star Trek movie, I think, uh, is I think the best of that bunch. It was an exceptionally good movie. It underperformed at the box office. But it was a very good movie, and yeah. so Paramount got wet, got cold feet about what to pursue next. Um, there's all kinds of where they're going to go from here, and this will tie into the split we'll talk about in a minute. Quentin Even Tarantino wants to get involved. Aaron Tarantino wants to get involved. They really wanted to bring back uh, Chris Hemsworth, who played Kirk's father, in a very short sequence in the opening of the first movie, uh, the Kelvin first movie, Star Trek 2009. Uh, so now that he's a big star, they want to bring him back. To me, that seems forced. Let's just bring him back because he's a big name. No, give me a good story. Yes. You know, and that, if it works to bring him back, then do it. Well, there's salary issues now, so both Hemsworth have walked and Chris Pine, who plays the new Kirk, have walked. So right now, whether there'll be a Star Trek 14 is kind of in limbo. It will happen at some point. In what form? Will it be this Kelvin crew? Who knows? It's been on CBS All Access and with streaming, which is the a whole new bully uh, going uh, once again a new frontier when it comes to watching shows. That the TV side has started to thrive again. Star Trek Discovery, which has in some ways been polarizing, but in other ways people have really enjoyed it, is on CBS All Access. There's now a trailer out for Picard, following Captain Jean Luc Picard from. The next generation in a post enterprise life, it looks like for yeah. him. Um, there's there's not many details known except he's got his own wine and his own fields uh, of fields of. He comes from a vineyard grapes. family, yeah, so no, Picard Vineyard, yeah, big pig vineyard family. Yep. So that's on the way too. and more. There's and a more. There's yep. an animated comedy coming. Lower decks, I think they're calling it. Yes, that's coming. There's talk of even more. Um, so all access is going all in with Star Trek. Um, stay tuned. And we'll get to the split here. We're getting to it. Um, but beyond that, I know we got to start wrapping things up here. We're getting kind of long in time, but um, it's been one of those situations where there's there's so much more to tell, but there's other things that are holding things back. So let's start talking about this split. Yeah, the split that had happened was a split that took place within Viacom, which has the... Shortly after Enterprise wrapped up in 2005, yep. Paramount, which is owned by a company called Viacom, which is owned by a guy named Summer Redstone, essentially divorced itself. And so, like in a divorce case, there was a custody battle where one side gets this asset, another gets that asset, is the, is the easiest way to explain it. Yeah, one became Viacom, the other became CBS Corporation, and then... Um, well, more than that, Viacom had purchased, and Paramount, owned by owned by Viacom, had bought in other properties, including CBS, had been purchased. So when the split happened, CBS was removed from that merger and became its own parent company with some brands underneath yes. that. And there, Paramount, owned by Viacom, had did the same. Yep, but CBS both, Corporation with CBS Television Studios as its subsidiary, they got... the all the Star Trek rights that were 
in on the TV side, and then Viacom and Paramount Pictures with its subsidiary, they uh, or subsidiary, they they got the uh, feature film library basically. Even more complicated than that, and the most dumb part about this is Summer Redstone is the majority shock, uh, stockholder in both companies, so it's just the dumbest thing. But more than just the rights to film and rights to TV, CBS officially owns Star Trek. They own it. Now, Paramount has this film library. They can make more movies based on the movies. But here's where they ran into issues now. And there's a lot of theory here. No, they're, they're very, very tight-lipped about what's going on. Well, actually, yeah, first of all, subsidiary. There we yes. go. Second of all, the this is listed online, too. The exact terms of the rights exchange between Viacom and CBS are not known. So that speaks to what you were just saying there, Dave, is that Nobody really knows the the true details of who gets what and and where's the divide here. It's just and and that's where there's a whole lot of confusion that comes with it. There's a lot of confusion. There's some unhappy fans because if Star Trek fans have let anything be known is that details matter to them. So not just story details but aesthetic details. For example, This new show that's on right now, Star Trek Discovery, is set 10 years prior to the original series. But you're looking at just the aesthetics of things, just just that alone. Look far in advance from anything you ever saw in the original series. Well, how is that going to rectify when 10 years of this show go by and now it's supposed to degrade, so to speak? Well, you know, it's a TV show and this is 2019. It needs to look like a 2019 show. My argument is then why go back in time at all? You know, why would you go back into, say, 1940s and do a World War II movie, but people are checking their cell phones? It's Well, that's what it was in 2019. That's not what it was in 1940, so why would you show that? So if you're going to talk about a timeline in a sci-fi universe, doesn't matter. You can't have technology that clearly doesn't exist, which that is looks of, advanced beyond what you're going to see later. Which is part of why people have complained about Discovery in some ways, is that this disrupts the timeline so much. And this, is, this isn't this is Star Trek, like, you know, stripping it back down to the bare bones before the original series came around, going back to the Discover, uh, going back to the, the original Enterprise crew. This isn't what we know as as being what was around at that time. Well, even beyond, what is one of the preambles? We started the podcast with us. To boldly go, or no man has gone before, but several shows have gone already. Why don't we move forward? You know, when the original crew was all there was, let's do more, but let's kick it forward about 80 years, and we'll do the next generation. Well, you have to honor what's come before, but now you can kind of do whatever you want to do. You've got some constraints. But let's move forward. It's a vast enough galaxy. There's more stories that you could come up with, more concepts that you could tell, more that you could do to further things along from where things had been left off. Sure, why not? you got the, you got an infinite number of possibilities, but we keep going back to familiar territory. Say what you want about the Kelvin-verse. We're going back to Kirk and Spock and McCoy and the Enterprise. It's a different universe, so it can look similar. It was, a, it was an interesting way to come around a couple of different problems, but it works. Um, now we've got Discovery going back to roughly that same time period, but it doesn't look like that time period. And there's certain elements of storylines that they've kind of tied up a little bit. We can never speak of this again. Really? You know, that's kind of a cheat. You know, then why go there in the first place if your whole point is to disavow that it ever happened? Then what's the point? And where are you going to go in the third season? You know, it just it, it brings up questions. But then the other part that is, and this is only a theory, but it does seem to hold a lot of water, is this. So you have J.J. Abrams and his production company called Bad Robot. They did the Kelvinverse movies. 
Uh, Bad Robot essentially is the showrunners for this new Star Trek series. Not in name, but a lot of the people that were with him, Robert Okri in particular, uh, has been the showrunner for Star Trek, or uh, Alex Kurtzman, rather, I'm sorry, um, has been the showrunner for this new Star Trek series. So he's a big bad robot guy. One of the things that they want to do is they want to do their merchandising rights. We want to have our guys oh, look, boy. Yes, look the way they look. So the uniforms look similar but not quite the same. There's also a theory that since Paramount does not own Star Trek, but CBS does, they can license Star Trek, which costs money. But Star Trek cannot be exactly what Star Trek was. It has to be a degree of difference. Now, how big that degree is, theorized about 25% difference. So they can look similar, but not the same. The problem here with all of this, Dave, and and you, I'm sure, would agree with this, is that the fans who have been such frontrunners for this show from the beginning, who have championed this show from the beginning, are the ones who are getting caught in the middle yeah. of all of this. And they are seeing these consistency problems. And while you can question just how valid some of the vitriol is, you can't question the validity of all of it. Because there are a lot of elements of it that are very true when it comes to maybe the soul of the show has taken a hit in some ways and that they are losing sight of what has made Star Trek work all along and where... People where there's been a lot of momentum with this series all along to the point where there's a great I mean we talked about this with Star Wars there's a great deal of fan fiction that is out there on Star Trek massive tons of fan fiction that exists out there on Star Trek a lot of books that have been written a lot of other alternate stories that's what sci-fi allows for but at the core there there's a core problem that this that this split between Viacom and CBS has created in terms of creative opportunity and then licensing and where's the money flow that is coming from these things that has been more on the forefront of the minds of those behind the show rather than telling the stories that the fans want to hear, expect to hear, and believe should be heard. And and they've lost sight of, of where they've been able to do that the best over time. Well, and you could see more problems down the road. So they've got Star Trek Discovery. It's a, it's a success. You like you guys like Star Trek? Well, here, have all the Star Trek in the world. So now, while we're excited, there's more They want more to have content coming. all year-round. CBS does on all access. Well, of they course. Star Trek content year-round. Of course they do. People are excited about Picard because it's Picard. It's not about the next generation. In fact, as far as we know, there's no members other than Patrick Stewart coming back as Jean-Luc Picard. The, from the next for generation. Now. I, I'm for now, sure I'm sure I could think of at least one character Jonathan, who would come back. Jonathan Frakes Riker is actually going to direct one of the episodes. You know, the fact that somebody might show up on a on a video call, "Hey, Jordy, how are you?" It could happen. I would not rule that out. Well, Riker wasn't the character I was thinking of, and neither was Jordy. I think you could guess who I, could, I would be I, thinking I could, of. I could guess. Yeah, I could take a couple guesses of a couple different characters, and I'd probably be right about all of them. Yeah, we've been waiting. 30 years almost now for the two of them to uh, I, you know, it, uh, finally John, come together for good. One of the things, John Delancey and Brent Spiner, Q and Data respectively, they say they don't age. So how can you explain their aging? Oh, boy. And so the, yep. as from, a, from a purely, and I, understand, I respect what they're saying, from a purely artistic standpoint, I can't play this character anymore because I shouldn't be aging. You know, I could look a different way. 
But how do you, how does Brent Spiner explain his wrinkles? Maybe Data has come up with something to become more human now. Because Data does return, those of you that didn't know. Dr. Beverly Crusher can age, though. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying. So there's a lot, anyway. of, there's a lot of ways that things can go. But so we've got a success with some issues. So now we're going to throw a whole bunch more at you. Yeah. Will there be the same kind of issues where it's not quite the 100% Star Trek that you know and love, but now it's... 75% Star Trek. And here's the other problem. There's growing momentum within this Viacom split to reform and come back together, oh, which means boy. Paramount and CBS or however things are going to work out will be completely back in. How do you rectify this split now, not just corporately, but the split within Star Trek when it comes back together? How do you explain this this gap in the zipper, if you want to look at it that way? How do you explain that coming back together? How come everything looks so different? Why can't you fix it? Well, they've forged two different pathways, really. Yeah. The, the movies have forged a completely different timeline using older characters from the original series. The TV show it, and the TV side, it seems, has forged multiple pathways where they are trying to draw from the old well. The Picard series is proof of that. While they are also trying to create new things, Discovery is proof of that. Although it, it seems as though they, they've not gone the route that you suggested, which was let's boldly step into new timelines in the future, and why not consider that a little bit more? I believe there's an, there's an untitled series that they are talking about doing that is based off of a Discovery character. They're already thinking about spinning off of this new creation of a show that they've that they have which is already a prequel in and of itself so you're i think you're right why not look at the future especially since on the tv side you have more flexibility to come up with new ideas why not create more to the timeline beyond rather than staying where you are now they've forged their different pathways so if they would all come together, TV and, and movie under one umbrella again, it would be fascinating how creatively they rectify the differences that have been created. I agree. But even further, if there is truth to this merchandising reason that why the Star Trek can't be exactly the way it was, perfect example, the Enterprise shows up in the most recent season of Discovery. This is 10 years before the original series. It resembles the Enterprise, but boy, it sure looks a whole lot different from the Enterprise we know and love. If it's a merchandising yeah. right and CBS owns Star Trek, why don't they own the license, make it look like it used to? Merchandising. Now we could sell a completely different model of the Enterprise and make profit off of it, Ugh. and we get the money rather than the original version that was a different thing, and then they'll get the... Da -da 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 -da. It gets kind of dumb. So these uniforms are different than those. This ship's different from those. This character's different from those with a different actor's likeness. That is kind of dumb because if and when this thing comes back together... How do you rectify the difference? And if you don't yep. think that it's going to happen, fans flipped out that the Klingons looked so different yep. from the original series into the movies and beyond. They It took 40 years, but they finally kind of answered the question. But at that point, the burr and the saddle had rubbed so raw, that, and other things too, that fans were so norked about it. You guys are going to repeat this. The wheel comes back around, and you're gonna you're gonna build up all this content for for, for all access that fans aren't gonna want because this isn't what we want. And when they strike out with Picard, which they could, depending, I don't. It's too early to know. They got Patrick Stewart involved. I think if he got too far away from the source, he'd say, ah, "We're walking," but he hasn't done that. So I'm optimistic. But they gotta they gotta solve this problem that they're going down before they go down. Well, the problem, and this is where. Would, would um, Picard himself, Patrick Stewart, really walk? 
Problem is, money talks. And the, and that's where this whole thing has been created. And money talks at the expense of fans who know better. And yes, like I said, sometimes I think fan scorn and fran- fan frustration and fan anger can go too far. Oh, I agree. But sometimes... They've got a point, yeah. and it's because there are some legitimate issues and some legitimate inconsistencies, and Star Trek has faced that with this, but they've forgotten that this whole thing is blown up to the extent that it has, going back to the very beginning, because of the fans, and because they had creative people who recognized that there was a passionate, dedicated fan base, and produced content that kept that fan base there, and kept it growing, and they had a plan behind it, and they knew when to make decisions like even removing Roddenberry because they knew they had to move forward in some ways creatively, and they did, They and need they made it work. They need another coming of a Harv Bennett or a Manny Cotto who ran the latter part of Star Trek Enterprise. By that point, it was too late, but he knew the product. He loved the product, and he delivered what, as a fan, he wanted to see and answer questions that he had they don't really have that with this new um, – that's arguably a third universe is the other thing. It's not Kelvin versus It's not even Prime Universe. The reason things aren't quite the same is because it isn't quite the same. They're not going to tell you – is a theory now. I can't say that this is the oh, fact. Oh, boy. But that's the theory is oh, that man. this is actually a third universe. is not quite the same, <laughs> and that's why – it's the prime universe, yes. Oh, you're but you're not digging. The prime you think it is, Dave. You're digging in deep no, now. Not digging. This I'm just repeating. And there's if you think about it, well, that's the reason that the Enterprise doesn't look like the Enterprise is in ten years. It's a different Enterprise, like the Kelvin. It's in a different timeline. Stay tuned. It's the merchandising timeline. Oh, but yes, that's what it is. <laughs> I was I was starting to think that you were going to to say they're going to wake up and it's all a dream. No, no, like that's not the very not, end of it not saying elsewhere. It's in a oh, Star man. Trek snow globe. <laughs> no, it's uh, it, there's there's a lot of complications here, and if you you've already got other properties like Star Wars that are realizing they've taken some missteps, and so their next step is going to try to retcon some of the problems from the last one. Star Trek has run to that course as well, figuring out why the Klingons lost their bumps and other things too uh you don't want to have to create more problems for this and if going back in time is going to start this kind of issue doc brown knew well don't go back in time you just get the butterfly effect go forward go forward go forward and that's what star trek needs to boldly do is forget about going back to the 23rd century which for star trek is the past the last part of next generation was the late 24th century and so if this new picard show is 20 years after that then i would assume it's the early 25th century Let's explore the 25th century yep. or go to the 26th century. Let's see how things have gone and start new things. You've got to respect what's come before, but if you want to change the aesthetics and make things look like a 2019 show should look or 2020 show, then do that. Go forward and follow Star Trek's own message to move forward, respect the past, build for the future. We just keep going back to familiar territory and it causes other unwanted problems you know i i know rick and nick are not here because they do their own supposed involvement with movies and yeah i don't know if they are really doing any movie planning or not but dave i look forward to the day when you are in the room as a creative consultant for star trek and you're telling people these things because i like star trek a lot i would consider myself a very mild trekkie like i i 
like the show. I, I like a lot of the shows. I, I haven't seen all of them. I like the movies. I, I've seen all of those, but I haven't gotten into it as deeply as some, and I've certainly you not gotten it into it as me. deeply as you, because you are an incredibly invested Trekkie with the way that you like to keep up with all elements of all the shows and all the movies, and that's why... A fan like you is is a great representation of the fandom of this series and where it would be nice if they could recapture the soul that a lot of the fans carry with them that has made Star Trek as big a pl- capture as big of a place as it has. And I know that is your hope yeah. for the future. You mentioned earlier, what are the hopes for the future? That's the biggest, right? Is recapturing the soul of what made Star Trek Star Trek. I think J.J. Uh, Abrams succeeded in that. I mean, there's a re- there's a reason why it looks different, and it's explained. Okay, so it's a, we're back in time. It's a whole new parallel universe. You can't things. Some destinies are meant to kind of come together, and okay, that makes sense. They got the same people on the ship, and okay, that's cool. Maybe that down the road in the Kelvin verse, the next generation, if it is fate, then they're all going to come back together in a new Enterprise, or maybe not. Maybe it's a whole different thing. Who knows? A long con of some kind. Who knows? But it's, you know, it's there's an answer to why it is the way that it is. Okay, I can get along with that. This whole discovery thing, it's the prime universe, but not really the prime universe. And No, you got to have an explanation for this. What it, Star Trek is in the very basic is element is a story. Make it a good story. It's got to be one that follows logic. Star Wars just tripped over itself because ha, these characters, logic. you like that? Star Wars started betraying what the characters were. There's no way that Luke would be the way that he was in The Last Jedi unless you're going to come up with an interesting story. That's a great story, but, you know, it doesn't really follow anything that's come before. Star Trek is going to go into the same well willingly, and they're going to get zapped by their own phaser fire. They need to make a good story, and good stories need to be coherent. They need to make sense from start to end, and that's what you kind of fail to forget. Star Trek is not necessarily a story. You have a thread, and you are weaving it into this existing tapestry, and if you're going to come up with your own thing, then don't call it Star Trek, because it isn't. You can't come up with something that's a really cool sci-fi story, slap some well-known brand name on it, and expect people to sip a Coke can but taste Sprite. It's just a cheat. It's a funny cheat, but it's not really funny in the end. I can't believe we just talked Star Trek in about an hour, because it's over... 50 years worth of content and we've gotten through it all in just about an hour's worth of time oh, highly Pretty, abbreviated yes yeah highly abbreviated and there's so much more that could be discussed i think on each of the shows on the movies and and the timeline but there's it, it's cool to see that there is so much that is in the works for star trek the big question is what will be at the heart of it it doesn't matter how much you have coming i mean that's exciting and that's great so long as you do it right, you know. So I've got a lot. I'm 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 kind of on board, but not fully. Both legs in the stirrups with Discovery. I've seen every single episode of not just Discovery, but every episode and every movie. Some of them many times. Um, I'm it's okay. I'm skeptical about this third season now. You know, I, I thought the second season was better than the first, but it also brings up problems and. Uh, it's a different type of show, but I'm skeptical. I'm very optimistic about the Picard show. Uh, I think it'll be good. Lower Decks will be a fun comic relief, and I think comedy absolutely does exist in Star Trek already. Oh, yeah. So a straight-up kind of a Family Guy-esque, Rick and Morty-esque Star Trek comedy cartoon, yeah, do it. Bring it. That'd be great, you know? There's already Star Trek cartoons. 
Um, so I'm, I'm in favor of that. So long as you start doing something that works to the bigger overall architectural scheme, however you want to describe it, this other proposed spinoff for Section 31 and uh, Giorgio, not so optimistic. It sounds like you have a great actress. Now you want to create a show around just because you have an actress and something else. No, 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 no. I don't think that's the way to go. I'm not one that you want to put on the board to design Star Trek. I'm a compass. I can point you the right direction and try to point you away from the bad ideas. A creative consultant. Consultant Like only. I said. Yep. Yeah, we're gonna we're thinking about doing this. No. First thing I would say is stop going back to the past. I'm not saying don't use time travel. I'm saying you got to start building to the future. Any more from you, Master Trekkie? Did we cover it all pretty well here today? You know, I'll say this. Star Trek Two. there's a reason we keep going back to it. Yeah. And, and myself, personally, it was the very first thing of Star Trek I ever saw. So maybe I'm biased that I think it's the best, but there's a lot of voices in that chorus that think the same thing. That, if you're looking for a template and a way to go, or at least where all the elements are, take from Star Trek Two. Not so stupidly as Star Trek Into Darkness that tried to be Star Trek Two Two. Just that was kind of dumb, but uh, do its own thing. Take those elements and reconceptualize it and go from there. With good cinematography, good music, those yeah. are elements they add in too. But yeah, come come up with some things like that that are creatively done. My first foray into Star Trek, really quick, since you brought up that that's how you got into it. My first foray into it was Saturday nights at home watching syndicated episodes of Star Trek the original series. And I remember when I was a kid even, I believe I remember the next generation occasionally being on our TV at home as well or a TV movie being on there as well um, or just the movie being shown on TV, some of the movies being shown on TV. But I remember seeing a few next generation episodes here and there. But the original series, my parents got me into it. They said, Joel, I think you're going to really like this uh, this show. And we would watch it in syndication together as a family on like Saturday nights and stuff. That's and it awesome. was it was great. My dad and I loved watching that show. He's like, Joel, this is a really creative show. It's got some big themes. It's got some it makes you think and it's really good. And then when I was in college, I delved into the next generation and I watched that on Netflix while I was in, living in Philly for a year and would watch an episode or two every day. And it was it was super while I was going through college. And then Picking off the movies one by one after that, and then seeing the new ones then along with it, it was it was cool to step into because again, bottom line was it made you think. It made you think in some pretty some pretty neat ways, all amidst a big backdrop. You know, I will say I think I will agree with something you'd said earlier. I think Next Generation is the superior show. Um, the original series, it's it's the Kirk, Spock, McCoy triad. And basically, each one of them represents one third of your human mind: the ego, the superego, and the reptilian brain. Yep. And that's the, that's what they are. All the rest of them, Scotty and Sulu and Uhura, they're great setting, but they're background characters. Really, I mean, way background characters. I hate to admit it, but it's the truth. I sir, Warp Factor Three. I sir. That's basically what they did in the show. Every once in a while, they would do something more. Next Generation, yeah, it's basically Picard and Data and uh, and Riker to a lesser extent. But everybody has a focus. There might be an episode where it's all about Will, or it's all about, uh, uh, you know, they call him Will or Wesley. My you bad. called him Will. I Will mean, Wheaton. Will Wheaton or Wesley Crusher. <laughs> Either way, it's all good. You know, where you would be the focus on things. So they got their chances to do that. 
And it was about a, it was about a crew coming together. It was about a crew working together. If I have a bad day, even here and now, a lot of times I need a, I come home from work and I need an hour before I can rejoin life. You know, I oftentimes will put on an episode of Next Generation specifically because at the end of the day, I'll put it to this way: Patrick Stewart was approached one time. This is stuck with me by a cop, and cops they have a hard job. They see some hard, difficult things. And there was one cop that talked to him at some convention said, you know, I've seen some horrible, horrible things that make you question reality, make you question your humanity, make you question whether we're going to move forward. And I will watch Star Trek, and it always has the same message. It may be a bad day, but it's going to get better. There will be a solution. It's going to be a better tomorrow. And that is one of the Even best. Even while you are making difficult choices. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of episodes in Star Trek that are particularly you know, dealing with big themes. Some of them are just straight-up fun adventure stories, and others deal with bigger things. One of the, You brought up briefly the inner light is that episode where Picard lives an entire life and then finds out it wasn't actually his life. And the end of the movie is so poignant and so moving, it's easy to see. You can almost hear a tear run down people's cheek, let alone him. And to the point where when they sold all the props, the flute, which I'm not going to get into the background of the story. You can watch it and learn yourself. It's just a prop. It's not even a real instrument. It does not play music. The people that when they were bidding on it were so distressed to hear that because of the weight that episode carried that the flute still brought in a lot of money. But it was, you know, it's not a real play. I was going to play this at home. Oh, you know, it's you go watch the episode. You'll learn all the subtext of what I just said. But it's um, it's it's an episode. It's a whole show that is entertaining. It makes you think and it does reaffirm even in these days that are difficult. It will get better. I would just watch the theme music just to start and really the opening credits of The Next Generation and it makes a bad day a little bit better. Just with the epic nature of it, but then, yeah, with the show too. So where do you delve in if you've never watched Star Trek before? Galaxy Quest is fun because it really is a behind the scenes of the behind the workings of the cast that really kind of didn't like each other uh, in the original series. Galaxy Quest. Great spoof. And even if you've never seen Star Trek, it's still a good movie. Um, So you got to give that a little shout out. Um, the next generation is a great place to start. All due respect to the original series, it is hokey for, but it is what it was. Shows in the late '60s that was cutting edge technology in the '60s. But when you look at what we have now, come on. If you come into it with an open mind, yes, it's really entertaining. Oh yeah, it's super entertaining. You've got to come into it with an open mind of okay, this is the late 1960s. If you need to get something slightly more or less cardboardy, check out the remastered episodes. They did a lot of cleaning up, and the shots are all redone. The visual effects kind of hold up better. Uh, but the next generation is a great place to start. Like any series, they have their clunkers, but they have far more that are way in advanced. Um, if you're going to go with the original crew, I'd say start with the uh, Star Trek two, and then go to three and four. It's a trilogy in and of itself. Um, the the Star Trek Genesis trilogy. It's a fantastic way to jump in, and from there, if it whets your appetite and you're liking what you see, you got a deep pool to wade into. Go pick your direction and go from there. Um, but that's where I would recommend to start because. Gosh, there's so many places to jump into. And you could theoretically jump into a bad pool and, well, I don't like this show, and you base it judged on that. Give it a shot, and if there's something to love, I guarantee you you'll find it. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. We're glad to have them aboard as the host of as the sponsor of the podcast. If they make a hi- new Star Trek movie, I'd love to go see it at Bemidji Theater. I agree. Located on Highway 2, just down the street from the airport. We did it. We got through talking about Star Trek in one podcast episode, although, 
I'm sure there could be much more that we could get into. Yeah. Hopefully, there's going to be much more to come. I felt just pressing down on the gas pedal a few times. Okay, keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. If Tarantino would do a movie, oh man, like he wants to, yeah. Oh, that that'd be really interesting. He's how, ri- he's how written that would one. Be possible. Whether it's the Kelvin crew or something else. Right now, Paramount's got to get its act together. And um, will he scare, scale back the Tarantino nature of his movies Could it be the, Star Trek? You know, we've heard an occasional cuss word, and I'm not going to swear, even though this is a podcast, uh, S-bombs. You know, would you be hearing Spock speak like Reservoir Dogs? You know, effing this, effing that, effing, effing, effing. That's effing logical, Captain. You know, that would be funny. I don't think it would necessarily work, but could Tarantino deliver other things that would make Star Trek work? You'd better believe it. It would be Shock Factor if that, yeah, was, would, if, if that was the case. It's so. all the way to Shock Factor 9. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you in space, perhaps, and at the movies.